Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Thursday, August 12, 2010. Mixed bag program today, but then again, that's kind of normal par for the Fighting for the Faith course. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which is to help you to think biblically, to help you to think critically, and to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There's a lot of very dangerous ideas floating around out there, and uh, we like to uh, use our net to capture them, take a look at them, and compare them to what God's Word says, and then decide whether we should kill them, or not the people, but the ideas, or uh, <laughs> set them free back into the wild. That That's the idea. We take every thought captive, make it obedient to Christ. That's kind of the idea here. It's not politically correct. I'm obviously an artifact of a different era. I can... Harken back to the days when Noah got off the ark. That's apparently the kind of dinosaur that I am. But that's, you know, we try to have a little fun along the way. And uh, it's all about really the gospel. Proclaiming repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. Okay. Yeah, I'm not going to do much of a monologue today. I There's there's so many things I want to talk about, it, it, you know, as far as the stuff that I've been researching and want to bring to the <clears throat> to the program today. We didn't get an opportunity to talk about um, a couple of news stories yesterday. One was the ELCA report about their drop in membership, uh, the uh, Crystal Cathedral story. I still want to get to that today, but uh, we're not going to we're not going to lead off with that. Uh, oh, man. The latest sermon series over at uh, New Spring Church. This is Perry Noble's church in Anderson, uh, South Carolina. And they have a Greenville campus, and they have another camp. They have a couple of campi, you know. And uh, well, let me put it this way: we've talked about uh, Perry Noble a few times here at Fighting for the Faith. Their latest series is all about the '80s. They're doing an "I Love the '80s" sermon series, and yeah, yeah man, just my my question is: is that for those guys who are preparing seeker dri- uh, seeker driven liturgies? Now, understand every church has a liturgy. I don't care if they they claim that they're not liturgical or, or if they claim that they are liturgical. It doesn't matter. 
every church has a liturgy. They have a particular order, a particular formula that they adhere to when, uh, you know, there's particular ceremonies that take place, uh, traditions that are part of the, uh, the worship service. Some churches follow ancient traditions and some, well, they've created new traditions uh, and they have a new order in the way they do things. And many times the theology that the church adheres to or the congregation of the pastor adheres to uh, will dictate the, uh, the, the, the different types of traditions and ceremonies and liturgy that a church follows, which then comes to, you know, comes to the question that I would like to ask today. And that is what purpose in the um, seeker-driven and purpose-driven liturgies, does a um, secular cover song play? What's the function that a secular cover song plays at the beginning of the worship set? I I have yet to figure out exactly what the function is, but uh, Perry Noble, who is a rock star uh, among the uh, the seeker-driven and uh, purpose-driven uh, crowd out there, and you know he's been out and and to saddle back and been a featured speaker, and he's got a leadership conference coming up, and he's going to have St- uh, Stephen Furtick, and and uh, he's he's going to have uh, Mark Driscoll out, and you know, and you know, he he's an up and coming mover and shaker in, in the uh, seeker driven and purpose driven movements, and uh, his latest sermon series is "I Love the '80s," and this past Sunday, at the beginning of the worship set, at the beginning of the church service. Um, they did a cover song from an 80s hair band named Poison. Um, yeah, uh, let me uh, let me play this and uh, see if you can tell me what is the function that... Now, by the way, this is um, the uh, praise band there at New Spring playing this song by Poison. I mean, the stage is decked out with martial lamps. I mean, it looks like a wall of amplifiers, and they've got pyrotechnics going off right now. This is uh, "Don't Need Nothing But a Good Time" by the band Poison. Big, they had big hair in in the, in the eighties. I this what is this eighty seven, eighty eight, somewhere. Don't need nothing but a good time, and it don't get better than this. Um, so exact <clears throat> now back in the eighties, um, I'd lived through them. Um, it, it practically, I really enjoyed the eighties. In fact, I miss president Reagan deeply, but, um, 
<clears throat> let's see here. Uh, the, the 80s hair band known as Poison, they would fall under the – back when I was growing up as a Christian, they would have fallen under the category of, well, they wouldn't have met the approved Christian list. Uh, they would have considered to, to be, well, secular and worldly and and uh, and the, the type of band that really exemplified the whole rock and roll, sex, drugs, rock and roll scene. I mean – I, 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 my remember memories of uh, Poison were well. Um, they they lived the rock and roll lifestyle. They typified it. They uh, they weren't guys who were sitting there going, no, 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 no. We we need to be chased. We wouldn't want to, uh, you know, dis- besmirch the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, we're going to say no to drugs. We're going to say no to all these women that are throwing themselves at us at the concerts. And instead, we are, we want to be model citizens and to exemplify and typify uh, Christian the Christian lifestyle. I, they didn't strike me as that. You know, I, I gotta give him props. I mean, the lead singer here, um, who's uh, uh, headlining this cover song from Poison in church. Uh, this is the opening of the praise set. Um, that uh, he, well, he's obviously a more gifted musician and singer than the guy who uh, heads the band up for um, Church by the Glades. You know, I, I gotta give him props for that. Okay, I've had enough. Okay, so so you you get the idea. The praise set begins with poisons. Don't need nothing but a good time, and I mean, complete with the lyrics about spending too much money on women and wine, and not knowing where you even spent last night. All that was is it's there in the. Uh... So the question is: in the seeker-driven, purpose-driven liturgy, since this is kicking off the uh, the uh, the the entire church service and, and you know and and then they go from this into the praise and worship you know songs what function does this play in the seeker driven liturgy i i just don't know um is god being glorified here um in the lyrics that are being sung i mean i, I no <laughs> i don't think so unless you have a completely different definition of what it means to praise and glorify Christ than I do. Um, maybe they're, maybe I'm just missing it. I mean, maybe because they played this cover song so well that glorifies partying and, and 
you know, don't need nothing but a good time and wine and women and you know, and don't being so slosh. You don't even know where you were last night. I, I mean, maybe it's it, maybe Jesus is glorified because they played the song so well. Maybe that's it. It's just it's to let everybody praise God for their musical talent in singing these songs in church. Or I yeah I just. <clears throat> Yeah, do you have any idea what the function of these cover songs are in the purpose-driven, seeker-driven church services? I mean, email me, please, if you uh, if you know. I I I can't quite figure it out. Uh, my email address: talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. And it's just, you know, put po- poison cover song as the subject, and you know, you know that way I can you know find it in the pile. But I I just I can't figure out what on earth uh why would I want to go to church to hear somebody um play a cover song like that anyway so, so talking about Perry Noble and uh New Spring um got an op-ed piece from Perry Noble it really doesn't matter what I do what I do as long as I do it with a flair what effect a little smoke is with a dash of hocus pocus and the scent of burning sulfur in the air. I'm a fraud, a hoke, a charlatan, a joke, but they love me everywhere. For it really doesn't matter what I do, what I do, as long as I do it with a flower. Yeah, that's our uh, that's our segue music for whenever we do a uh, an op-ed piece or something written by Perry Noble. Perry Noble uh, is now a guest contributor, uh, a guest columnist over at the uh, Christian Post because you know he's a rock star in the leadership circles of uh, the purpose-driven and seeker-driven movements, and um, he's um, oh man, this is just ridiculous. The name of his op-ed piece is three arguments that sound spiritual but are actually stupid. <sighs> Posted today at the uh, Christian Post. Uh, Perry Noble writing. <clears throat> so here's the three arguments that sound spiritual but are actually stupid. Argument number one that sounds spiritual but is actually stupid. Uh, the church is not a business but rather a hospital for sinners. So he says that's that sounds spiritual but it's stupid. So here's uh, here's his uh, retort to that stupid uh, spiritual sounding argument. He says, oh, okay, so the church is not a business, but rather a hospital for sinners. Okay, so the problem with this argument is a hospital is a business, and if it's not ran properly, then it will have to close its doors, thus losing its effectiveness in helping those it has been called to reach. Like it or not, the church world today, in the church world today, leadership matters. God made sure we knew that leadership is a spiritual gift, and the reason for it has been given was to help the church be more and more effective. I personally believe the church should be the best run, he says best ran organization on the planet because God has gifted and called leaders to lead and filled them with his Holy Spirit so that they can do so. Now, the funny thing is, is that his counter argument sounds spiritual, but it's stupid. No, and you're saying, well, that was awful mean of you to say that. Well, hey, 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 he's a pastor. He's setting a godly example for me. 
So if he can say that somebody who says that the church is not a business, rather is a hospital, if he can say that that's a spiritual-sounding argument that's actually stupid, then if his counter-argument sounds spiritual but is stupid, well, then I can make the same claim. I, I am capable, and you know, and since he's a pastor, I should follow his godly example and say the same thing about his argument. No, his argument's actually really stupid. Here's the deal. The the point is is that when somebody says the church is not a business but rather a hospital for sinners, okay, what they're what they're making here is is an observation about what the nature of the church is. That's really what's going on here. And in our lifetime, in the in the past couple of decades, really not very long at all, we've seen churches go from being churches to being really, uh, f- for lack of a better way of putting it, small little mega corporations, little church corporations. And they're being run according to the corporate business uh, leadership models, which is really the issue. Okay, now, I want to point something out. For 2,000 years, for two thousand years the church has survived without ever having to use or employ a fortune 500 corporate ceo uh leadership model so the issue this is the this point comes back to the point of what is the true nature of the church okay so he says like it or not in the church world today leadership matters yes church leadership has always mattered in the church but see, as somebody who has a, a, a master's degree in business administration with an emphasis in leadership and organizational change, that's kind of what he's really doing here is he's flattening things out that really shouldn't be flattened. The reason why is because the church has always had leadership, always, from the beginning. If you think about, uh, go back to Jesus and his disciples. He spent three years with 12 men really pouring himself into them and teaching them, and he then sent them out. They become the apostles, and they are the first leadership layer in the Christian church. Okay, So the issue is not that leaders, like it or not, uh, in the church world today, leadership matters. Well, no, no, no. Leadership has always mattered in God's church. It's always mattered. The question is not whether or not leadership is important. The question is, what is the biblical, the correct biblical model for leadership that needs to be followed? Because some leadership models are not conducive with the leadership models taught by Christ. I mean, there's all kinds of different leadership models out there. You've got the innovative uh, vision-casting leader uh, model of the uh, of the uh, Druckerite corporations. You have top-down militaristic leadership models that are used in the military. You know, you got the chain of command thing going on. You have you have even uh, leadership models that are more bottom-up. Okay. An example of kind of a bottom-up leadership model, a more democratic way. Think about the Quakers and the Quakers and the you know the quietest Quakers, where they wouldn't where somebody would you know they would gather together as a community, and anybody has the right to preach or teach. That's kind of a bottom-up you know uh, approach to it. So there's all kinds of different leadership models out there. The question is, what's the what you know in, in light of the task that the church has been given okay the church hasn't been called to go out and make a name for particular leaders the church has you know in fact the church really has its ultimate leader as Jesus Christ 
And the mission that he's given is kind of twofold, okay? You can find it in both Matthew 28 as well as Luke 24. You squish the two together and you kind of have the whole, you, you got the whole uh, the thumbnail of what the mission and vision, if you want to think of it that way. Um, in Luke 24, we have Jesus saying, going and go out and proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in his name to all nations. And in Matthew 28, you have, uh, you know, uh, along with that idea, making disciples, teaching them everything that I have command, you know, that I've uh, commanded you and, uh, you know, and I'll be with you even to the end of the age. So uh, make disciples, proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus name, baptize. That, that's all part of this stuff. So now the question is, is that in light of the mission that Jesus has given the church, no, see, here's the deal. The current leadership model employed by the seeker-driven guys um, assumes that individual congregations can have their own mission and vision, okay? No, you can't, okay? The church itself is one big organization. It's one big organism. It's We're all the body of Christ together. I don't care what denomination or what you know whether you go to a big church small church or whatever you have to think more the better way to think in this using catholic with a small c you think of the church universal okay since we're all connected together we're all supposedly on the same team we've got a problem when individual congregations go rogue and employ leadership models that haven't been sanctioned or taught by christ the innovative vision casting leader is not what Christ taught the uh, the disciples to be. He taught them to basically go with a shepherding model. That was the model of leadership that Christ established in the church. That's why for millennia we've referred to the guys who who organize and lead the congregations as pastors. That's a shepherding term. So the leadership model that Jesus modeled, taught, and then was employed in the churches is a shepherding model. It's not a model that uh, that really gets big uh, results in in the uh, in the short term. It's a it's a model which has great great impact in the long term. It's kind of a long term commitment of somebody watching out, protecting people from wolves. Uh, taking the time to know individuals, know their weaknesses, and know their strengths to protect them, to discipline them. And it, this is the, the leadership model that Christ wanted employed in his church because that's the one that he, had, that he taught and employed. Okay, The problem is, is that these guys have come in and they've, a, they've brought in a business leadership model that's foreign to the scriptures and which Christ didn't institute. And they justify keeping this foreign business, uh, this foreign leadership model uh, based upon the fact that they claim that they're getting results. And they, and here's what, uh, remember what Perry said. He says, I personally believe the church should be the best ran organization on the planet because God has gifted and called his leaders and filled them with his Holy Spirit so they can do so. That's not a biblical argument. That's a spiritual-sounding argument, but it's stupid. It's subjective. No, we if we're going to look at leadership in the church, we have to look at the leadership model taught, employed, and, and, and put into effect by Christ and the apostles. We don't have a right to deviate from that leadership model because Jesus has given us not only the mission and vision that he has for the church, but the leadership model in which he wants that mission and vision to be executed.
Yeah, that's the problem here. Well, uh, here's argument number two that Perry claims uh, sounds spiritual but is actually stupid. He says, um, he says, number two, too many churches are just chasing cool and relevant. And here's his answer. Uh, he says, uh, so what's the opposite? Chasing uncool, boring, predictable, and meaningless? Sure, churches can go off the deep end and worship creativity rather than the creator, but to say that a church should not embrace creativity and innovation and leverage them for the use of the gospel is insane. Well, hold on a second here. Um, He says, church should not be a place where people come and see what life was like on this planet during the 1960s and 70s. By the way, this is a straw man argument, but rather a place where people encounter Jesus Christ and the preaching of his word, an environment in which they understand one does not have to be sacrificed for the other. We are created in God's image and called to be like him, which means we are creative beings. Somehow I believe that the church is supposed to be reaching kids way better than Disney. By the way, this is his own personal argument, not a biblical one. Uh, they They have a mouse. We have a Messiah who gave his life and rose from the dead. Our message is so much greater and should be told in the most effective ways possible. Well, Hang on a second here. I want to point you to the false dichotomy that Pastor Noble set up here. Okay, So here's the false dichotomy. He says that it sounds spiritual but is stupid to say that too many churches are just chasing cool and relevant. And so the false dichotomy he sets up is, and he says, oh, so what's the opposite? Chasing uncool, boring, predictable, and meaningless. Well, see, here's the problem. Okay, The... uh, this claim that too many churches are just chasing cool and relevant, you need to look really under the surface of what's going on here. Okay. What we're not saying is, is that we should pursue meaninglessness or boring. Okay. The church, by the way, has survived for 2000 years without ever having to chase after the popular culture. And it's absolutely false to claim that what the church has been doing for 2,000 years is enshrine a particular culture within the congregation, at least as far as human culture is concerned. The church, when the church gathers, by the way, the church is the body of Christ. It's, it is a gathering of people who've been called out of the world through the preaching of the gospel, and they come together to do very particular things. Okay, church. When when the church gathers together, they are there to hear God's word, to hear the forgiveness of sins, to hear about Christ and Him crucified, and to engage in particularly strange uh, rituals uh, known as baptism and the Lord's Supper. Okay, and uh, there are very specific promises attached to each of those things. Okay, so we're there to hear God's word. We're there to uh you know take the lord's supper um and uh, and to baptize people i mean that's that's what we're there for okay so the thing is is that the category of cool or uncool boring or and uh, and predictable that that really has no meaning in church okay we're there for very specific reasons now some people might think that's boring and it's possible to deliver God's word in a very boring way. Okay, that's not what we're arguing for here. It's that this idea of these seeker-driven churches—they are chasing after cool and relevant. And yes, the message that we've been given, 
the thing that's supposed to be happening is being sacrificed. Okay? No matter how you slice it, people are in today's culture only going to sit in church for so long. So when a church opens up their church service with a five-minute cover song uh, from a, a 1980s uh, hair band, what was sacrificed is time that could have been spent in in-depth study of God's word and truly praising God. Okay, so yeah, there, there, and yeah, that might have been cool. But see, the thing is, is the church doesn't gather to do cool. The church gathers to do some very specific and unique things that are. Uh, that are really what the church does to hear God's word and to receive the sacraments. That's what the church gathers. And so the categories of cool and uncool, those are very, very new categories. And that, that's not, that, that, that doesn't even make any sense. Okay. I mean, do, do you see, for instance, I mean, flower shops. Okay. We, they've, they've been around for a long time. Okay. So, I don't know if you've noticed, but when you go into a flower shop, the people in the flower shops aren't trying to be cool or uncool. They're trying to sell flowers. And so the category of cool and uncool doesn't really fit in flower shops. Okay, When you go to a restaurant, now some restaurants, they have, they have really nice ambiance. Okay, But ultimately, there, it's not about pursuing cool. It's about providing a meal and making a profit okay some places you know you you might want to go to okay but the ultimately it's about serving a meal okay so the question then being now switches okay since the church is given to do particular things and the shepherd is supposed to be doing particular things preaching God's word, really dedicating himself to proclaiming sound doctrine and refuting those who contradict it. That's all part of his job. Um, there are some things that uh, the, the, the question then comes up. If, if these are the things that we're given to do in the church, what is the best way, you know, what really highlights the gospel and God's word and, you know, and really treats it reverently and things like that? Reverence is really the bigger category. When it comes to church, reverence and fidelity are the categories that we should be operating in, not in cool or uncool. I mean, that, 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 that's not even a relevant category. Okay. <clears throat> Here's what he said. A spiritual-sounding argument that is apparently stupid. The last one is number three. Too many pastors today are obsessed with dressing cool and shopping at Buckle. I don't even know what Buckle is, but I'm not cool. He says, this one always cracks me up because, well, I happen to be, I happen to like shopping at Buckle. They actually have jeans that fit me. I'm not sure about the dressing cool part, but I really do like their clothes. Honestly, I was not aware that sur uh, surrendering to ministry meant that I also had to surrender to the pleated cuffed khaki sweater vest comb over club. Bottom line, there is a war going on for, uh, on the battle for souls for men and women, and fighting over clothing styles should not be a fight we dive into. Dress how you like to dress, and if others want to obsess about it, you should feel sorry for them and not fight with them. Yeah, see, here's the deal, though. Um, I, I find that these really cool-dressing pastors, that their wardrobes are a distraction. Um, yeah, that, I, I see it really as a distraction because that, then I'm, you know, when, when, when a guy gets up and, and he, and he preaches and he's got this, you know, this really cool hip trendy thing going on that he's wearing, 
I, immediately the thing that comes to my mind is, man, would I want to wear that? Would I look I, – I, oh, maybe that didn't work. Maybe that color scheme did you see, the problem with the, the chasing after the latest fashions and just dressing like you like is that it it seems to distract me away from hearing God's word and uh, and gets and gets it so that I'm spending time on a Sunday morning judging the pastor based upon what he wore. Yeah, just something to consider. Anyway, so there you go. That's uh, Perry Noble's latest thing here. I, you know what? I don't even think I talked about what we're going to talk about in the program today. Oh, man, I I just had to get right into the question. Anyway, when we come back from the break, we're, we're up on our first break. We'll quickly talk about the Crystal Cathedral, talk about the ELCA. And then um, I've got a, a Huffington Post piece from a recent graduate from Princeton Theological Seminary entitled The Case for Christian Agnosticism. It's like, what? There's no such thing as a Christian agnostic. This is ridiculous. So I'm going to read this because this is all the, this is a postmodern way of a, of looking at things. And then today in hour number two for our sermon review, we got a Brian Wolfmuller twin spin. Where I'm going to play two good sermons uh, recently good uh, recently preached by Pastor Brian Wolfmuller of Hope Lutheran Church in Aurora, Colorado. So I hope you stay with me and stay tuned. Oh man, <laughs> I'm. I'm all over the map today. I, I must be doing my program stream of consciousness. Anyway, um, it's a very postmodern way of doing it. Today's postmodern edition of Fighting for the Faith is brought to you by the letter A and the letter B and the number three. Anyway, if you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you could do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Relevance Schmelevance. We preach Christ crucified for our sins. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Hello, I wish to register a complaint. Uh, we're closing for lunch. Never mind that, my lad. I wish to complain about the sermon that I purchased a day ago from this very boutique. Uh, yes, uh, what, what's wrong with it? I'll tell you what's wrong with it, my lad. It's a dead sermon, that's what's wrong with it. No, not possible. You just preached it wrong. Look, matey, I know a dead sermon when I preach one, and I know that the sermon I preached yesterday was certainly dead. Jesus Christ wasn't mentioned once, not even in the footnotes. No, no, you just weren't charismatic enough. Remarkable sermon, beautiful imagery. The imagery don't enter into it. It's stone dead. No, 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 no. You're just not open-minded enough. All right, then. If it's not dead, then I shall be able to preach the gospel. I read a portion of it. Ahem. And then the camp counselor told all of the woodland creatures to become more righteous so that they, too, could get to the place called heaven. You, you see what I mean? This is ridiculous. There. 
I found the gospel in the sermon. No, you didn't. That was you just writing the word gospel on the cover of the room temperature sermon. Well, I never. Yes, you did. I, I never, never did anything. This entire sermon fails to preach anything that's worth anything to anyone. Now, that's what I call a dead sermon. No, no, no. You haven't looked deep enough into yourself. You must be joking. Well, you're just being divisive, and you refuse to accept the message that's being presented. Um, Now, look. Now, look, mate. I've definitely had enough of this. That sermon is definitely rotten. And when I purchased it not but a day ago, you assured me that it was Christ-centered, cross-focused, and filled to bursting with the gospel. Well, if you would just read the title. Read the title? What kind of title is this anyway? Super Spiritual Happy Fun Friends Adventure Camp Pack. Well, this particular sermon is designed to draw large audiences, and that's what you said you wanted. It has lovely imagery. Look, I took the liberty of examining this sermon after I preached it, and I discovered the only reason why I bought it in the first place was because it had been put into the wrong sleeve packet. Well, of course it's in the wrong package, sleeve. If I hadn't put a less suspicious cover on the sermon, you'd have had people chasing you just so that they can hear you preach it. Chasing me down the street? Mate, listen, people wouldn't be chasing me to hear this rubbish if I was firing midgets out of cannons. It's bleeding demise. You didn't buy the midget cannon expansion pack? The sermon has passed on. The sermon is no more. It has ceased to be. It's expired and gone to me and its maker. It's a stiff. Bereft of life, it burns in hell. If you hadn't put it in the wrong package sleeve, I would be using it for Firestarter. The thought processes that brought it about are now history. It's off the twig. It's kicked the bucket. The bleeding choir invisible wouldn't listen to this sham. This is an ex-sermon. Well, well, I'd better replace it then. Let's see. Uh, Christ-centered, gospel, Jesus. Well, sorry, Squire. I've had a look around in the back of the shop and, uh, well... We're right out of well, whatever it is that you're looking for. I see. I see. I get the picture. I, I got a sermon here from Rick Warren. Does it contain Jesus Christ and his atoning sacrifice? Well, no, not really. Well, that's hardly a replacement, is it? Look, if, if, if you're really dead set on the whole Jesus thing, I suggest that you look up Pirate Christian Radio. All they do is talk about Jesus 24-7. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Pirate Christian Radio? Very well, I'll give them a try. Dr. Rod Rosenblatt discussing the church's need for world-class scholarship and the unique way in which the British academic model offered at the Wittenberg Institute can help provide you with a top-level postgraduate theological degree. Christians are dependent on good scholarship in a way that sometimes we forget. Think of Tyndall House in England. Some of those evangelicals were so ruled away from the big table conversation in the Church of England that they had to develop graduate training under particular guys who had a high view of Christ and a high view of Scripture. Over the years, they did marvelous stuff with individual young scholars who came there to be trained. So what's the difference between the European model and the American model? The European is used to saying things like, I studied under so-and-so, and And the American, uh, that's pretty foreign. And I'm not here talking about the diploma mills. I'm talking about somebody who is tutored, something like Oxford or at Cambridge, and uh, walked through graduate work. If you would like more information about the Wittenberg Institute's British-styled research master's degree, then visit them on the web at wittenberginstitute.org forward slash PCR or call them 
at area code 425-533-8659. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. All right, we're back. Warning, when the relevant pastors are making arguments to support their relevancy, check the book. That would be the Bible. Many times they're not even engaging in sound reasoning or biblical argumentation. Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to post office box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code four. Six zero three eight. Okay, moving along here in the news. All right, from the Christian Post, the headline reads, Family of Crystal Cathedral founder to take 50% pay cut. Yeah, I don't know who what they were thinking when they went when they let this one out. This is an interesting story because of what it <laughs> the, there's a tacit confession here. Uh the yesterday's big word was nepotism. Look it up. Yeah, th- this is what's going on at the Crystal Cathedral. I mean, this sounds so wonderful, but when you read the details of this, you realize, "Ooh, <laughs> what's been going on over there?" And the uh, this is what <laughs> From Joshua Goldberg of the Christian Post, the founder of Southern California's Crystal Cathedral will take a voluntary 50% pay cut for the next two months, as will his wife, his children, and his children's spouses, according to a memo that was recently sent out to employees of the megachurch. (laughs) So let me see if I have this straight. Yeah, by the way, today's big, this was yesterday's big word. I will use it again today. Nepotism. Look, that's the, today's word. So here's what this memo is confessing. At the Crystal Cathedral, who was on salary? Answer, Robert Schuler, Robert Schuler's wife, Robert Schuler's children, 
and Robert Schuler's children's spouses were all on payroll. <sighs> it's, uh, really? Wow. Sounds like a family-owned operation there. Um, yeah, by the way, nepotism is also – that's another leadership model. Bad one. Really generally doesn't work out very well. Uh, it works out – you know, I find that, that the, the nepotistic family model works okay for Italian restaurants yeah, and, and Greek restaurants. I found that it works out just fine in, in those types of situations. Big corporations, yeah, no, it don't work well. No, it has a real bad tendency to negatively impact employee morale because unless you marry into the family, there's just no way that you can get into a position of making any kind of impact. Anyway, <clears throat> so the August 5th email uh, to church staff, were they were informed of the decision and told that the move was made to help meet the demands of the vendors to whom the church owes more than 2 million dollars so uh, see, that's the other thing i mean um so i mean this sounds so magnanimous i mean that for the next two months robert schuler robert schuler's wife robert schuler's children and robert schuler's spouses will take a 50 percent pay cut in order to help pay the two million dollars that they owe to outside vendors how much is the Schuler family pulling in every month? I mean, if if that's really going to make the difference between them being able to pay their vendors and not pay their vendors, how much are is the, are the is are the all the Schulers and their kids making and their spouses? And what are they doing to justify such huge amounts of money? <sighs> anyway, um, none, none, however, were let go this time around. Uh, yeah. Anyway, you get what I'm saying. I mean, that, I've read enough here. What's going on there at Crystal Cathedral? The word is nepotism. They, they've admitted it. I, oh man. Here's another one. Uh, you know, the 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 mainstream media, New York Times, the. San Francisco, you know, the Gate Chronicle, I don't know, uh, the New York Times, the L.A. Times. I mean, all of them were applauding, you know, the courageousness of the ELCA for, you know, uh, having the courage to change their doctrine, as if the church can do that, to change their doctrine and uh, embrace and celebrate um, practicing homosexuals by allowing them to become pastors and preachers within the congregation well uh the new york times and the la times and and cnn and all the major liberal media outlets don't ever talk about the shoes that drop when churches stop um holding to sound biblical doctrine you know they celebrated their brave and courageous decision well this is what's happened as a result of their brave and courageous decision to abandon god's word <clears throat> If this is by Joshua Goldberg, ELCA reports biggest ever drop in membership. The Evangelical Lutheran Church in America witnessed its biggest ever drop in membership last year, according to a recently released in, uh, re analysis. By the way, I think the figure is uh, there have uh, you know it's not easy to get out of the ELCA. By the way, uh, when a congregation wants to leave the ELCA, there is some bureaucratic red tape that that must be adhered to. First of all. 
uh, the congregation has to vote on it, I think, two times. And each time it has the 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 vote has to carry by a two thirds majority. And then there's all other kinds of red tape that goes along with it. But since the decision that they made last year at this time, 148 congregations have been successful in leaving the ELCA and more are slated to do so. Now the even okay so they've had their biggest member okay by the end of 2009 ELCA membership stood at 4.5 million 90,000 less than the year before reported the ELCA office of the secretary and ELCA research and evaluation before the latest drop the biggest loss was 79,000 a drop witnessed in 2005 the ELCA congregation count meanwhile uh, was recorded at 10,348 48 less than the year before uh, the largest ever drop in the congregation count was recorded in 2004, a drop of 72. Despite the losses, the reported total assets of the ELCA congregations have uh, grown to in 2009 by 1.2 percent to 20.9 billion. The average giving baptized uh, member gave uh, grew 2.8 percent in 2009, uh, 492 dollars. Reported ELCA Secretary David W. Swartling. Um, yeah, the, the ELCA is in, in big trouble. And the reason I mean, is seriously, um, here's the deal. Here's the question I have. Why do I need a God who will give me what I want? I mean, if, if, if God's going to give me what I want and I'm kind of in the driver's seat, then why do I need to show up to church? Because I don't want to. Yeah, you, you understand what, if you're going to give the culture what they want, say, oh, we're going to baptize the values of the American culture. The American culture is going to basically just turn around and go, oh, thank you. Um, but we're still not coming to your church. I mean, you know, our cultures dictate that we don't really want to have anything to do with God anyway. And we just want you to recognize to bless us, but be gone. Well, you know, no, the, the, the job of the church is to prophetically proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus name and tying yourself to the cultural latest cultural wagon craze or ideas is basically a formula for disaster because you cease to be Christian at that point and you cease to be speaking for God and all you're doing is telling the culture what they want to hear anyway and why do they need to come to your church to hear what they want to hear anyway? All all they really want is just affirmation so they can go about doing what they're already doing. (sighs) Yes, it's ridiculous. Okay, and then we've got this wonderful little op-ed piece that appeared in the... um, Huffington Post. The name of the op-ed piece is The Case for Christian Agnosticism. Uh, yeah, this is by Kent Hayden, uh, MDiv, who recently graduated from Princeton Theological Seminary. Uh, Kent, um, you may want to get your money back. You know, as a recent graduate, uh, you may the statute of limitation may be in place so that you can claim uh, master's in divinity degree misconduct or uh, that their their product was defective. Apparently, they didn't do you very well. Um, Kent writes, he says, a friend of mine used a word today that was beyond the scope of my vocabulary. Hmm. I nodded as though I understood, and our dialogue ended up flattening out into a monologue. I don't remember what the word was, and uh, next time I hear it, I'll have no idea what it means. I I missed an opportunity to learn something and maybe to teach something because I'm afraid of the vulnerability of ignorance. To admit ignorance is to relinquish control, but ignorance is a part of the human condition. 
I came hardwired with very little knowledge to pretend that I am done learning, to act as though I have filled out the empty spaces in my understanding is to cement ignorance into stupidity. It's to avoid vulnerability at the expense of growth. Okay, now i got to stop right here. Um, since this is written by an, uh, an MDiv guy who recently graduated from Princeton Theological, the obvious implications here, are if you claim to know anything about God, you know, and you can say it with certainty, then what you're really doing is cementing your ignorance and, and, uh, and uh, missing an opportunity for real growth. Jesus said, seek and you will find. Seek and you will find. Find. He didn't say seek and keep seeking and leave room for growth and all. Yeah, listen, we. I, I don't claim to know everything about God. I never will. Okay, because to claim such a thing would be stupid. I, I. How can I possibly know everything about God? That being said, I do hold to a sound biblical doctrine and believe that it's knowable and embraceable. And that's exactly what the Bible tells us to do. Titus. You know, in the book of Titus, Paul says to Titus, he doesn't say embrace ignorance. He says, teach what's in accord with sound doctrine and rebuke those who contradict it. Okay? He didn't say, oh, no, 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 no. Don't, don't you understand? Titus, you'll never, ever possibly know everything about God. It's just, yeah, and with the last thing you want to do is cement your ignorance into stupidity and, and, and miss an opportunity for growth. So you want to embrace an I don't know attitude. This is just dumb. I mean, he, he, what he's doing here is taking this idea that each and every one of us, we continue to grow and to learn. And to stop doing so is, is really, uh, that's a bad situation. I continue to grow and to learn. Continue to, even as I open up God's word, there's stuff that I still am amazed by, the depth of God's word. And I have yet to even come close to exhaust, to exhaust the, the deep wellspring of God's word. That being said, it's also true that there are certain fundamental doctrines and truth of which they don't change. Even though I keep going to the deep well of God's word, what happens is is that my understanding of those doctrines that I am certain and firm and, and are certainly and firmly taught in Scripture, my understanding grows deeper and deeper and deeper of those doctrines. But the doctrines don't change, Okay. Not in a postmodern way of thinking, though. Here we go. Unfortunately, I'm continuing reading here. This tendency to flee from ignorance is nowhere as common as in, as in theology. Theological ignorance carries with it a tremendous vulnerability. Oh, doesn't that sound spiritual? Yes. I want to embrace the vulnerability of theological ignorance. Admitting it to oneself necessitates existential, moral, and relational openness. It demands the difficulty of dialogue. The obvious and safe defense against this vulnerability is feigned certainty. It's a nod as though we understand and continue our monologues. This is just ridiculous. This isn't even an argument, by the way. Okay? Uh, again, the reason why this isn't an argument is because the, the biblical authors don't talk this way. Jesus didn't talk this way. Jesus said, seek and you will find. He didn't say, go on an endless journey, embrace ignorance, and keep an you know and keep openness and and embrace an agnosticism so that you can grow. Jesus didn't say anything of the sort. Okay. <clears throat> Neither did the apostles. By the way, the apostles had no unique doctrines of their own. They received their doctrine from Christ. 
and they proclaimed their doctrine clearly and said to rebuke those who contradicted. The the uh, disciples didn't really embrace ignorance or agnosticism. Instead, they boldly proclaimed what they knew and held to it certainly. In fa- you know, hang on a second here. Um, in fact, if you read in the book of Hebrews, um, certainty is, well, given as a virtue, not a vice. Uh, Hebrews chapter 11 says this. Hang on a second here. I've got to flip over there in my computerized Bible. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the certainty of things not seen. For by faith, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what was seen was not made out of the things that are visible. Listen, I can say with certainty, by faith, that God created the world and the universe. I wasn't there when he created the world and the universe. Were you? No, but God has revealed this in his word, and Jesus has made it clear that that the, the scriptures are the very words of God, and that heaven and earth will pass away, but his words will not pass away. Jesus put his stamp of approval on it and proved that he was the greatest expert on the scriptures by raising himself from the dead on the third day after he was crucified under Pontius Pilate, thus cementing his claim to actually being the God of the scriptures. Okay? So faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction or the certainty of things that are not seen. I can say with certainty that God created the heavens and the earth. Scripture reveals it. I wasn't there for it, but I know this by faith because I can trust Christ and I trust his word. Let me continue. Let me get into my postmodern, progressive, spiritual-sounding voice. Jesus began his ministry with a call to metanoia, the Greek word commonly translated as repentance, but which literally means change thinking. It means change your mind, yeah, is to face one's vulnerability. Really, that's what metanoia means. Metanoia means to face your vulnerability, to face ignorance. Change of mind. Uh, that uh, metanoia means to change your mind. Change your mind about what? Jesus said, proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins. So the change of mind that is brought about through the preaching of the gospel is the change of mind that going from basically saying, I'm a decent and good person to changing your mind and saying, I'm a sinner in need of the forgiveness of sins, that what I've been doing was wrong. What I thought was good is bad. That's what is meant by metanoia here. It doesn't mean to embrace ignorance or agnosticism. This is just ridiculous. Again, Kent, you really need to see if you can get a refund uh, off of whatever you paid for your MDiv from Princeton Theological because what they sold you is defective. <sighs> okay, let's see here. Uh, to change one's thinking is to admit one's ignorance. It's to face one's vulnerability. But at some point along the way to modern theology, we bought into the idea that ignorance is a sign of weakness. To call to repent was replaced with a demand to consent to the honest questioning that is an integral part of metanoia, came to be seen as a sign of bad faith. Agnosticism became conflated with indifference, or or worse, we became a a society of Gnostics. That's ridiculous, okay? Gnostics believed in uh, basically secret knowledge, not 
doctrine, but secret doctrine, secret knowledge, the demiurge and all of this kind of stuff. They believe that matter was evil, that they they believed in a dualistic universe. You're redefining words here in ways that that are not even historically accurate. Gnosticism was not the belief in sound biblical doctrine. That's just ridiculous, okay? No. Again, Kent, you need to get a refund. Let me read for you the writings of the Apostle Paul, who was an eyewitness to the resurrection because he saw Jesus. Jesus appeared to him, okay? The, um, <clears throat> Paul writes, Titus, he says, uh, Titus chapter 1, verse 10, There are many ins- who are insubordinate and empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party, They must be silenced. Sounds like Paul was embracing certainty because you wouldn't want to silence somebody if you were, were, well, embracing ignorance or you thought that agnosticism was some kind of a Christian virtue. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, uh, said, Cretans are always liars and evil beasts and lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, Rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith and not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. Uh-huh. So, um, yeah, all throughout the scripture, we're not, we're not confronted with either Jesus nor his apostles embracing ignorance or agnosticism or uncertainty or anything like that. You, you just don't find it in the scriptures at all. And your mangling of of these biblical concepts, even the concept of Gnosticism, shows that you're not dealing correctly with, you're not thinking soundly here, dude. You need to, again, you need to see if you can get a refund. Because your MDiv isn't worth the, um, well, it isn't worth the, the paper that your diploma was printed on. <sighs> Case for Christian agnosticism. We're not called to agnosticism we're called to faith we're called to trust we're called to belief we're not called to doubt we're called to we're called to cling to and hold on certainly to jesus christ and god and the promises of scripture revealed for us and we are called to be certain of the fact that god created the heavens and the earth that he will forgive us on account of what Christ has done for us on the cross, and that there is a such thing as truth and sound doctrine and we're to rebuke those who contradict it today uh, the postmoderns call for Christian agnosticism. That's just unbelief cloaking itself in spiritual language. That's not biblical faith. That's unbelief. This isn't a friend that should be embraced. It's an enemy that should be rejected. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the certainty of things not seen, Scripture says. We're not called to be Christian agnostics. There's no such thing. That'd be like me saying, I am an underweight fat guy. Again, that's just ridiculous. Or Deepak Chopra has a recent article out. He talks about the pathless past. It's just, this is irrationality. And what uh, Kent received at Princeton Theological was an education in irrational philosophy, not an education in sound biblical doctrine and theology. Sad. He really should see if he can get a refund. Okay, we're up on our uh, second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you could do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back.
if you think God is a black woman named Papa, then you need to get out of the shack and read your Bible. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough of this sissy, frenzy, turning photo written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Are you tired of... Giving gifts that are as boring as elevator music? I mean, how many ties and dust-collecting paperweights does a person need? Well, Pirate Christian Radio has the perfect solution to boring gifts. The answer is Cloud9 Living. Cloud9 Living offers more than 1,600 unique and memorable experience gifts in 42 cities nationwide. Gifts such as hot air balloon rides, dinner cruises, stock car racing, skydiving, and combat aircraft dogfighting. Cloud9 Living has gifts for every taste and every budget. For more information on Cloud9 Living, visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cloud9. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cloud9. You'll be glad that you did. All right, we're back. Hour number two, Fighting for the Faith Sermon Review time. We've got a Brian Wolfmuller twin spin. <laughs> yeah, I decided to go on a good sermon binge. I need to purge these bad sermons out of my mind a little bit. Refocus, Christ, cross, grace, sin, all of that, yeah, that kind of stuff. Sin and grace, not the other way around. See, look, look what's happening today. 
The good, the bad, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We are an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Now, normally I only play one sermon, but whenever I do sermon reviews that are from Lutherans, yeah, for them, brevity is the soul of the gospel. They like to get in, get out, and make it a meditation, a homily. If you want really in-depth, verse-by-verse kind of study, you have to go to the Sunday school class. That being said, today's sermons come to us via Hope Lutheran Church, Aurora, Colorado. Pastor Brian Wolfmuller, host, uh, co-host of the uh, Table Talk Radio and Table Scraps programs here at Pirate Christian Radio. Uh, sermon number one today is entitled false teachers bad <laughs> that's what he named it the second one is entitled slaves to righteousness slaves to life thought this would be good to play in that particular order too doing the white man over by while listening to the ukulele version of the good the bad the ugly I always uh, feel so cool when I get to play cool music like this. I'm distracted. All right, so without any further ado, here is uh, Pastor Brian Wolfmuller, Hope Lutheran Church, and his sermon entitled, entitled, False Teachers Bad. Jesus. Amen. The wicked everywhere abound... And would thy little flock confound. That, dear saints, is what Jesus is talking about in the gospel text today. That we hear every, every year on the eighth Sunday after Trinity, we have this text from the end of the Lord's Sermon on the Mount, and we hear these words straight from Jesus. Beware of false prophets. It is good for us to stop and to consider these words. This command of Jesus. This, after all, is a command. He is giving us, in these words, a good work to do, but one that we don't often think of. In fact, I think if I were to ask you to jot down a little list of, uh, of good works, just think of the top five good works that come to your mind and, and make a little list. I do not think that looking out for false teachers would make the list. Now, this is a good point that he's making. A lot of people, when we think about biblical discernment and uh, doing the work of a Berean, comparing what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God and rejecting that which doesn't hold true, um, that uh, Pastor Wolfmuller here is is saying that this is a good work. In light of what? In light of the fact that Jesus gave the command to beware of false prophets. Would it for you? I don't think it would for me. But this is exactly what the Lord Jesus is commanding of us. The good work of discernment, of making sure that the teaching that we hear is the same as the teachings in the Scriptures, the teachings of the Holy Spirit, the words of the prophets and the apostles. If you were to ask a sheep, a little lamb and you happen to find one that could talk and write, if you were to ask this little sheep to list to make a list of five good works, I would suspect that the sheep would have on their list looking out for wolves. I don't know, but I suspect that it would be somewhere on the list. This is exactly how the Lord would have us 
uh, to be. Because the sheep realizes that its life is constantly in danger from the wolves. And so we realize too that our lives are constantly in danger from false teaching, from error, from false prophets. Okay, notice he said our lives are in danger. That is not an overstatement. That is the correct perspective. Our lives are in danger by false prophets and false teaching. Eternal lives. We want then these words to sink in. For the pure teaching of God, which is opposed by the world and hated by the devil, is what we want to hear. We want to beware of false prophets. And this being where, by the way, is not just the job of the pastor. It is not safe to think, oh, pastor will sort it out if something is right or wrong according to the Bible. Because imagine it, and may the Lord forbid, but imagine that some false teaching would come here from the pulpit. You, the Lord's dear people, need to know the Scriptures, the teaching, the doctrine, so that each of you can say, yes, that's what the Bible says. Yes, that's what I learned in the Catechism. For all of us then, the Lord Jesus tells us to watch out, to beware of false prophets. And He tells us how. And he tells us why. First, how. Jesus says that you will watch out for false teachers because you will know them by their fruits. We are to look at the fruits of the teacher. Now this seems simple enough. If you're sitting under an apple tree and an apple drops down on your head, then you know that the tree is an apple tree. If you're walking down the street and there's a vine coming over the fence and there's grapes hanging from the vine, you know it's a grape vine. But it is not so simple with the false prophets. After all, their business is deception. In fact, when we look at the text that we have before us from the gospel, we notice there's a, that there's a quite a bit... There's quite a bit of complexity with these words and instructions from Jesus. First of all, the false teachers don't look like false teachers. Jesus describes them this way. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Now think of that. The false prophets don't look like false prophets. They don't wear a name tag that says false prophet or some sort of t-shirt that says I'm a false prophet, or I'm with false prophet, or something like this. They look like Christians. They look harmless. They're dressed like sheep. They look like true teachers. And not only do they, do they look harmless, they don't, they don't act like false teachers. 
Listen to these words from the end of the gospel reading where Jesus says this, On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Didn't we do many mighty wonders in your name? And I will declare to them I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Did you hear what the false preachers did? They prophesied in the name of Jesus. They cast out demons in the name of Jesus. They worked wonders and miracles in the name of Jesus. None of these things seem like what a false prophet would do. But they don't, but just like they don't look like false prophets, they don't act like false prophets. So here's the trouble. The trouble with sorting out false teachers. They neither look nor act like false teachers. In fact, they look and they act like Christians, maybe great Christians, like teachers of the truth. We are left then only with one thing to judge, and that is their teaching. This is the fruit of a teacher, be they true or false. If a teacher speaks contrary to the Lord's word, then they are shown by that fruit to be a, a false teacher. If, for example, they preach the gospel to the hard-hearted and to the unrepentant, they show themselves to be false. If they preach the law to the sorrowful and to the repentant, then they show themselves to be false. Now, what, what is he talking about here? Uh, this is this where he's getting this is proper distinction of law and gospel. This is um, uh, Walther's work, and so what he's talking about here is misapplying God's word. They may correctly understand what the gospel is, but if you're preaching the forgiveness of sins to the unrepentant, you're not properly preaching God's word. If you're preaching the law to those who are crushed by the law and withholding the gospel, you are a false teacher. Yeah, in fact, I would recommend uh, the, the latest edition, uh, the, the new edition of uh, Law and Gospel, uh, the proper distinction of Law and Gospel that uh, CPH has put out. It, it does a fantastic, great translation, by the way. It, it, Walther does a, just a stellar job of uh, laying out the dis proper distinction of Law and Gospel, and that's what Wolfmuller here is referring to. If they preach works in the place of faith or in the place of Jesus, then they show themselves to be false. If the teacher does not teach or preach the ferocity of God's wrath or the incomprehensible height of the Lord's love, which we see in the death of Jesus, then they show themselves to be false. Wow. Yep. And so on. And so forth. But here's the trouble. If we were to just list all of the false teachings that swirl around us, not only in the church at large, in the world at large, in our nation at large, it would take us weeks. Now we know that all false teaching takes glory from Christ and it takes comfort from us. But the way that the particular false teaching does this is different depending on the different variety of error. So Listen to what he said. All false teaching steals glory from Christ and steals comfort from us. That is a great common denominator. So, how do we sort it all out? 
How do we know if a teaching is true or false? This is a common analogy, and it's a good one, and I'm, I'm sure that I've used it before, but uh, maybe not in a while. I understand that in the old days when they were training uh, bank tellers to discern the money, what was true currency and what was false. I lived this. I was a bank teller in Seattle, and yep, I was trained on how to spot counterfeits. We spent all, a whole lot of time studying the real thing. A whole lot of time studying the real... Did I mention it was a lot of time? <laughs> yeah, you become so familiar with the real thing that, uh, you know, because there's a gazillion different ways to counterfeit. But let, let, I'm stealing a thunder. That they would train them to recognize the true dollar bill so well that when a false one came around, they would know the difference. You see, there were so many... Not just so that you'd know the difference. I mean, you could feel the difference. I mean... I, uh, over the course of the years that I've been out of the bank, uh, there's been a couple of times when I ha when you know I've been given change, you know Walmart, a grocery store, doesn't matter, and there was a counterfeit bill in what I was given, and I knew immediately as soon as it touched my fingers that it was a counterfeit, and then they would uh, you know run the little pen over it and verify, and sure enough, it, it, you become so familiar with the real thing that you, you just touch the the wrong thing and you know. Different types of counterfeit. So many different methods, so many different techniques, that if you were to study all the different ways that counterfeit got it wrong, you would never learn at all. And even if you did, the next day someone would come up with something new. But if you were to learn the characteristics of the true currency, the feel of it, the weight of it, the ink of it, the smell of it, the size of it, the, the, the pattern on it, if you knew that so well that when a false dollar came across, you would recognize it immediately. Well, this is how it is for us. We want to learn the truth of the Lord's Scripture, the truth of the Lord's Word, the truth of the, of the prophetic and apostolic books, the truth of Jesus so well that when an error comes across our face or into our ears, that we recognize it instantly as fake and as false. And when we know the truth that well, the teachings of our Lord Jesus that well, then we can go around discerning the truth from error all the time. But this, dear saints, is hard and difficult work. False teaching is patient. It's slow moving. It's persistent. I don't know how many of you have planted an apple seed, but it takes a long time for the seed to sprout. In fact, I've never seen it happen. I don't know how many plants I've tried. I've never seen it happen. But even after it, after it grows and sprouts, it takes years and years for it to have any fruit. And so it is with false teaching. It, it, it's patient. It's slow growing. It takes a long time for it to manifest itself. And so when the Lord Jesus warns us of these things, we have to be patient and constant in our vigilance with the Lord's Word. But, and this is the second point. Why? Why is Jesus so concerned about these things? Why is it? And, and when we scan the scriptures, we begin to see a pattern emerge. And, and that is that every time the scriptures command us to beware, it's to beware of false teaching. It's not just Jesus, but Paul and John and Peter and the prophets themselves. Every time we're told to beware, it's to look out for false teaching. But why? Why is it so important? It can be stated simply like this. False teaching is dangerous. 
In fact, we can go one step further and say false teaching is the most dangerous thing in the world. I agree with him. He's right. Uh, you think that, uh, you know, a, a doctor who uh, is uh, not competent to be a doctor is the most dangerous thing in the world, or a bad politician, or you know, a despot, or a totalitarian dictator. No way. Those guys pale in comparison to false teachers, because those guys can only hurt your temporal body. False teachers send you to hell. Jesus after the words that we heard in the gospel text, gives the illustration to, to, to drive this point home when he talks about the two, the two houses that are built. One's built on the sand, and the other is built on the rock. Jesus says, Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came. And the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell. And, says the Lord, great was its fall. If we build our house, our life, our minds, and our hearts, and our faith on the shifting sands of false teaching, then the end is prophesied there by Jesus. It fell, and great was its fall. And this is why Jesus has done everything for our salvation. We, after all, could do nothing but wallow dead in our sinfulness and the deserved wrath of God. But here comes Jesus into our sin, into God's wrath, into our death, and he takes our place, covers our sin with his blood, and establishes an, a way to get that forgiveness, that blood, that salvation, that mercy and kindness, to get it to you. And that way is his word preached read, meditated on, studied, bound up with water or, or with the, his very body and blood. This is how Jesus gets his love to you, how he gets his, his forgiveness to you, how he gets his mercy and his kindness and his smile to you. And we have to understand that. Because when we understand that the Lord's Word, the teaching, is the way that Jesus gets to you His mercy and kindness, then we understand why the devil at every turn opposes it, tries to choke it out and cut it off and stop you from hearing it. In the ancient world, there was a military tactic called the siege. You'd be in a city... And you'd want to conquer it, but it had such huge, massive walls and ramparts and maybe moats with wild dogs or something running around. And you couldn't possibly get in. You couldn't, you couldn't overtake the city, so you had to do something else. You would draw a circle around this city with soldiers and battlements, and you'd set up the siege works. You'd be far enough away to where you're out of danger, but close enough in to where you could keep an eye on things. And you would simply cut off anything from going into the city and anything from going out. And what happens? Without food, without water, without supplies, with no way to send for help, the people in the city 
either surrender or they starve to death. I have to tell you that some of the most gruesome pictures of warfare in the ancient world are descriptions of what happens inside a city that's besieged. I mean, people are starving. They're dying all over the place. They're going crazy. And it's terrible. All because life-giving food and water and supplies can't get into the city. Well, this, dear saints, is what the devil does or tries to do with us, with false teaching. The devil tries to cut off from getting to you the life-giving word of forgiveness. The devil is trying every day, not just in the church, but in your own lives and in your own homes, to cut this word off from you. Because if you do not have this word, if you do not have this forgiveness, if you do not have the word of the Lord's kindness, then you, like a city under siege, simply waste away. You see it? If the devil can stop the word of the Lord from getting to you, or if he can poison that word with error and falsehood, then he can watch you and he can watch your faith wither and die. This is exactly how the devil fights against the truth. He has his siege works set up against the church, trying to choke out the Lord's law and his gospel to stop it from getting to you. And if he can do it, then great is the fall. But, dear saints, in our constancy of looking out for false teachers, there is no cause for fear. For while it is true that the devil fights against us, it is also true that Jesus fights for us, for you. He is our hero and our champion. He is the Lord of hosts who holds the field forever. He, above everything else, loves you and desires to have you with him in eternal life. And so while it's true that the devil and his hordes are constantly trying to stop the Lord's word from coming to you, the Lord Jesus takes delight in confounding the devil and in comforting you, in forgiving you, in planting the seed of His truth and His word of life, of planting that deep into your ears and in your hearts so that you know without a doubt that your sins are forgiven. And when you know that, all false teachers are taken away. For you have the one teacher of all truth, even our Lord Jesus Christ, to teach you by His blood, by His death, and by His resurrection, and by His words of life that establish you in an everlasting hope that you are His, both now and forever. Amen. Amen. Whew. Great stuff. I don't think I could add anything else to that. I just, ah, that was amazing. All right. Uh, now for sermon number two in our Brian Wolfmuller uh, twin spin. The uh, next sermon is entitled Slaves to Righteousness, Slaves to Life.
the name of Jesus, amen. Dear saints of God, the way Paul teaches us in Romans chapter 6, you are a slave, you are a slave, one way or the other. So here are your two options. You can either be a slave to sin, or you can be a slave to righteousness. Romans 6.19 For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Later, St. Paul writes, Romans 6, verse 20, For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. And then, verse 22, But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the fruit that you get leads to sanctification and to its end, eternal life. So there are these two options, slaves, a slave to impurity, a slave to lawlessness, a slave to sin, or a slave to God, a slave to righteousness, a slave to life. On the one hand, there is a giving of yourself, of your, of your body, of your members, says St. Paul. That is your hands and your feet and your mouth and your mind. There is a giving of these things over to impurity, giving them over to sin. And this, says St. Paul, is slavery. This is the same thing that our dear Lord Jesus teaches. When he says, truly, truly, I say to you that everyone who commits a sin is a slave to sin. That's John eight thirty four. The slave to sin. And here's what that means. The slave to sin is a sinner who is unrepentant, who sins with no thought of the sin or with no burden in their conscience or, and I think this perhaps applies to the Christian, it is the sinner who sins and feels and knows that sin in their conscience but refuses to repent, to admit their sin. They don't want to admit that what they're doing is wrong. They don't want to admit that what they're doing is a sin because then they know that they would have to change, that they would have to make an effort to stop that particular sin, whatever it is. And this is the way, dear saints, that a heart is hardened. It is the way that your conscience is dulled when you feel the pain of a sin that you've committed in your conscience and you don't listen to it. You ignore it. You push it down. You don't confess your sin. At least you don't confess that sin. And the more that this happens, the better we become at ignoring our conscience and living the way that we want. Now, I know that I'm talking in abstraction about sin here, about particular sins. But I suspect that there are in each of your lives a particular sin, in each of your own heart, a sin or an act or a deed or a pattern that comes to mind when I'm talking about this thing. And it's these particular sins, the breaking of these particular commandments for each one of us that the devil is using to damage our consciences and to make us his slaves. 
And this is the terribly ironic part of all of this. For we think that when we sin and do what we want to do according to our flesh, we think that that means that we are being free. I can do whatever I want after all, so I'm going to go over here and do this sin. We think that this is freedom, but it is not. St. Paul says clearly that this is precisely what it means to be a slave to sin. And this slavery is a slavery of the worst kind. For this slavery to sin leads to death. Romans 6.16 Do you not know that if you present yourself to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one to whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? Romans 6.21 But what fruit were you getting at the time from the things that you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. And then Romans 6.23 The wages of sin is death. Slavery to sin leads to death. And now, here is the danger for us. For all of us have heard the gospel. We have heard that the Lord Jesus has done everything for us, everything for our salvation, and that he forgives us freely, grace alone, pure grace. But our sinful flesh with the help of the devil, takes that pure gospel, that word of life and forgiveness, and he uses that forgiveness to make us slaves to sin. Here's how it happens. Instead of using the gospel to forgive our sins, which is what Jesus has in mind, the devil uses the gospel to excuse our sins. Again, instead of using the gospel to forgive sins, the devil wants to use the gospel to excuse sins. And this is a terrible, in fact, one of the most terrible confusions of law and gospel. Imagine it this way. Here we are, here on Sunday morning, July 18th. Don't let the bulletin fool you. July 18th. And all of us have sins that we've committed in the past, sins that, are, that stand behind us, sins that we committed this morning, sins that we committed last night, sins that we all committed last week and last month and last year. We have sins behind us. And when I look back on my own sins, the Lord wants me to first recognize them as sins, but also to recognize them as forgiven by the gospel covered by the blood of Jesus. When we look at the past, we should look at it through the lens of the gospel. The devil wants us to do the opposite. He wants us to look at the past, not through the forgiveness of sins. He, he, wants, he wants us to look at the past, not through the gospel, but rather through the lens of the, of the law. He, he wants to say to us, how could you have done such a thing? And you call yourself a Christian. There's no forgiveness to you. And so the devil wants us to look, use the law to look back and so bind us in despair. On the other hand, when we look ahead and we consider the future, what lies ahead of us in the next hour, in the next 
to this afternoon, tonight, in the weeks and months that the Lord might give us if He extends our life that long, when we consider the temptations and the choices that stand waiting for us in the future, then we should wear the glasses of the law. I should do this, and I shouldn't do that. It is God's will, what He's told me. There are good works waiting for us in the future. And by the Holy Spirit, we look to them and we pray for them and we give them a good shot. But again, the devil wants to mess things up. For while the Lord wants us to look at the past with the gospel, the devil wants us to see it with the law. And while the Lord wants us to look at the future with the law, the devil wants us to look at the future with the gospel. Like this. Oh, yeah, there's that temptation coming along. There's that opportunity to sin. Go ahead and do it. Don't worry about it. After all, Jesus will forgive you. You see? And that is not using the gospel to forgive your sins, but to excuse your sins. That's not using the gospel to calm your conscience. That's using the gospel to destroy your conscience. That's not using the gospel as the Lord intends it to bring about life. That's abusing the gospel to bring about death. And if we... Oh, these are great points. Wow. If we have this temptation to use the gospel as an excuse to sin, then it is no gospel. It is what St. Paul says, a slavery to sin and to lawlessness. You see what I'm talking about? And the result of this misuse of the gospel, of using the gospel to excuse the sins that we plan on doing, the result of it all is a hardened heart, a crusty conscience, and ears that are clogged to hearing the gospel. The result is often some sort of addiction to a particular sin. And this is an extremely dangerous spiritual condition. Now, dear friends, if you are thinking to yourself, that's me, that's my conscience, this is the burden and the slavery that I've been dragging around all of this time, that I have been using the gospel not for the forgiveness of sins, but for the exclusion of sins, then I want to say to you in particular two things. First, please come and visit me. Call my cell phone or call the office. We'll set up a time and we'll sit down and talk. For this sort of thing is exactly what private absolution is for. To break away the hard crust that forms on our conscience and to bring in the healing word of forgiveness. What good is a pastor? You might be asking yourself that question, but here it is. What good is a pastor if he can't help with this sort of stuff? And don't worry when you do, because I know something about each of you. I know that you are a sinner, and you know the same thing about me. The surprise in all of this is not our sinfulness, but the Lord's mercy and His forgiveness. And that's how we have life. The surprise is the gospel, that the Lord Jesus looks on us miserable sinners and he says to us that you are forgiven, that you are perfect, that you are holy, that you are his. 
And this is the second thing that I want to say to you. If this describes you, I want you to hear these words clearly. Your sin, even, even the sin of misusing the gospel to excuse your sinful life, even the sin of despising God's grace, even this sin is forgiven. Even this sin is died for by Jesus. Even this is covered by his blood. Okay, i got to pause here. Notice the sharp contrast to what he is doing with sin and falling short and the solution he's offering as compared to the solution we hear over and again uh, from so many churches. I mean, the formula in the other churches is so simple. I mean, you're falling short. God demands that you do this thing. You better pull yourself up by your bootstrap and, and rededicate yourself to trying harder to doing it. Completely bypassing forgiveness. It's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. And in this sermon by Pastor Wolfmuller, I hear the same I hear the same theme that I heard Pastor Charmley preach the other day. This I mean, the shocking thing is not God's wrath. The shocking thing is not that you're a sinner. The shocking thing is that Christ died for your sins. And it's the mercy and grace of Christ his shed blood for you, for your sins. I know that there are people listening to this who are saying, this is me. Pastor Wolfmuller, myself, and the scriptures don't tell you, try harder. Be forgiven. Receive the forgiveness of sins. Know that Christ died even for that pet sin that you have been feeding rather than drowning. That pet sin that you have been secretly indulging in rather than bringing to the cross and repenting and being forgiven for it and using the gospel to excuse it. Christ even died for that. Repent, be forgiven. Christ died for that. For this slavery to sin, this bondage to uncleanliness, this, dear saints, is what the Lord Jesus has rescued you from. This is what you died to when you were baptized. Romans 6, 4, you were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Romans 6, 7, for the one who has died has been set free from sin. And Romans 6, 11 and 12, you must also consider yourselves dead to sin. And alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. For while we were born on the one hand into a slavery of sin, we have on the other hand been born into a slavery to righteousness. 
a slavery to God, a slavery to life and to freedom. Romans 6.22 But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit that you get leads to sanctification and to its end, eternal life. The slave to God is the repentant sinner. It is the sinner who hears God's law and knows their guilt, and then the sinner who hears the gospel and knows the Lord's forgiveness. The slave to righteousness knows their sin, and more, they know their Jesus and His death and His resurrection and His blood and His forgiveness. The slave to righteousness are slaves to this righteousness because Jesus has called us righteous and given us His holiness. To be a slave to righteousness does not mean to be perfect in everything that we say and do and think. It doesn't mean to have a perfect life or perfect thoughts or perfect motives. It means a life of repentance and faith. It means that we trust in the death of Jesus and we know that that death was for me. It means to know the depth of the Lord's sorrow over sin and then to know the height of the Lord's love for us. To be a slave of righteousness is to know Know the cross of Jesus and that nothing can separate us from his love. It is to know that we will be forever and ever in eternal life. Not because what we have done, but because of what he has done for us. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God in Christ Jesus is eternal life. And dear friends, Jesus in His death and in His resurrection, has made you exactly this, slaves to righteousness, slaves to life. May the, may the dear Lord Jesus grant us His Holy Spirit, that we may know His smile, His love, His forgiveness and grace, and so be both now and forever slaves of him, his righteousness, and his life. Amen. And now Amen. <laughs> wow. Uh, yeah, I don't think I can add anything to that. Wow. <sighs> yeah, I feel I'm shaking off uh, the bad mojo from the... Uh, <laughs> the bad sermons review here. Oh, is it refreshing to hear God's word properly preached, law and gospel, sin and grace. The law in all of its sternness and terrifyingness and the gospel in all of its comforting glory. Oh, man. It's as if we're hearing the very word of God. And that is exactly what we're hearing. Mm. Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring this important international radio outreach to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says, 
donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing mission and work of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to partner with us with, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. So what would you think? I'd love to get your feedback. You can email me. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. 